Thank you for checking out this sermon video here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. You are joining us for our series called Radical Red Letters, Kingdom Living in a Chaotic Land. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text new to hope to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today and enjoy the sermon. Before I even open God's word today, I just was impressed as we were singing that song, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching online, we just sang a phrase, hallelujah, Jesus saves. How many of you in the room, you know what it means to be saved? Amen. Maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online, and that terminology is something that you're not familiar with. Hallelujah, Jesus saves. I discovered it personally when I was a freshman in college. I tried to fill the emptiness on the inside. I'd not pursued after God. I'd not wanted God in my life. I was trying with all the other stuff to fill up the emptiness. And as a freshman in college, understood really the gospel for the very first time that Jesus is life and that only through a relationship with Jesus can I experience real abundant life. And the gospel teaches us that Jesus, even though we've sinned against God, Jesus took all of our sin We just sang about it so beautifully. All of our sin on the cross, he died paying the penalty for our sin. And he didn't stay dead. Amen. He rose again as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin. So that you and I could put our faith and trust in Jesus, be forgiven of our sin, and by grace be given a relationship with God. And when we do that, when we turn from our sin and trust Christ and we're given a relationship with God, that's the Bible word being saved. We're saved from our sin. We're saved from the penalty of our sin. We're saved from the power of sin in our lives. And ultimately, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin as we enjoy eternity with God. And I just wanted to begin today by saying, if you're watching online or if you're in this room, just bow your head just for one more moment. If you've never trusted Jesus to save you, I know we're living in some crazy times. I know things are a mess, but the answer is Jesus. Right now in the stillness of this moment (laughs) with your head bowed, I want to invite you, if you've never done so, Just to give your life to Jesus. Just to tell him you've sinned against him. Thank him for dying for your sin. By faith, trust him to be your Lord and your Savior. And then just thank him for saving you. And listen, you probably don't even understand all that that means right now. But let me tell you what. If you just put your faith in Jesus, you just became a child of God. You've just been born again into his family. God, I pray for those today that have trusted you. Whether watching online or whether in the room. God, I thank you for the gift of salvation. Hallelujah. Jesus saves. We rejoice in you today. 
Would you just take a moment right now, thank him for your salvation if you're a Christian. Just thank him for your salvation. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. And all of us say together, amen and amen. If you just prayed with us to receive Christ for the first time, listen, I want you right now, I'm about to preach, but right now, you get your smartphone and you just text the number 94090 and you text that phrase that's right here on the screen, Jesus follower, right here on the screen, Jesus follower, you text it to 94090. We want to have a conversation with you about your new relationship with Jesus. We want to walk with you to help you understand what it means to be saved. Amen? Amen. Well, in every age, in every generation, the next generation always seeks to express itself in a radically different way of life. In some ways, each new generation expresses its discontent with the world that it has been brought into by expressing radical different ways of living. Whether it was the hippies in the 1960s or the gothics in the 1990s or the hipsters of the last decade, every generation wants to show their discontent with the way life has been lived. John Stott is a great theologian and author. I love what he writes about this idea. Listen to what he said. Today, the younger generation continues to search for a place they can be at home. They feel alienated by the prevailing culture. If today's young people are looking for the right things, meaning, love, reality, they are looking for them in the wrong places. The first place they should be able to turn is one they normally ignore, the church. For too often, what they see in the church is not a new society which embodies their ideals, but another version of the old society which they have renounced. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are not different from anybody else. For the essential theme of the whole Bible from from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself. This people is a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. Its vocation is to be true to its identity, that is to be holy or different in all its outlooks and behavior. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus opens his mouth and begins to describe a way of life that is what John Stott has just articulated. It is radical. And yet I'm afraid that much of the church in North America has settled for something far less than this radical way of life. Instead of radical in America, the church has become comfortable. Instead of different, we've become irrelevant. A few weeks ago, we set out on a journey to examine these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and then measure our lives by the truth that he sets forth. He does so in eight distinct statements called the Beatitudes. They are countercultural. 
Let me remind you the definition I gave you of a beatitude. The beatitudes are eight radical declarations of kingdom living resulting in contentment in the midst of the chaos. In the midst of the chaos of the world around us, we can enjoy satisfaction, the fullness of God, contentment by living out these declarations of kingdom living. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. I want to read down what we've, through what we've explored so far and then add one new one for today. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he, after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We looked at that last weekend. Today we want to explore verse number four. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to do with each of these like I did last weekend. I want to examine, first of all, what does it mean to mourn? When Jesus asks or makes this statement, blessed are those who mourn, what does it mean to mourn? What did he mean when he said that? And then I want to explore what it looks like for that to be practically lived out in our lives today in the midst of the chaos around us. So first of all, what does it mean to mourn? Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn is not a word that we commonly use very much in our culture. As a matter of fact, I would submit that probably none of you this week in a conversation have used the word mourning. The word mourn in our society is typically relegated to one activity, and it has to do with when someone dies. When someone that you know, a friend, a family member dies, then you are expected to mourn. Even if you look it up on the internet, you look up the word mourn on dictionary.com, the definition is to feel sadness at the loss of someone. However, that definition is not unique nor radical. Christians and non-Christians mourn when someone dies. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to feel a sense of sadness or loss when someone you know, somebody you're related to, somebody you've done life with, dies. Non-believers, non-Christians experience and express that kind of mourning. So what is Jesus talking about when he said, blessed are those who mourn? When Jesus uses the word, he's describing something that is much deeper and much broader than just the definition of grieving over the death of someone that you know or love. The Greek word that's used here for the word mourn is actually the strongest of nine different Greek words that are translated into the New Testament with the word mourn. That alone shows you the breadth of this activity in human experience. There are nine different words in the Greek language for our one word 
mourn or mourning, meaning it's something that's experienced in so much of our lives. This particular word is the strongest word in the Greek language. It describes and defines a kind of grief which takes such hold of a person, you cannot hide it. When you see them, you know that they are mourning. I have a friend, Derwin Gray, who wrote a book on the Beatitudes called The Good Life. It's a relatively new release, highly recommend it if you're looking for a good book to read. But here's what he said about this word mourning. It expresses loud crying as if someone is wailing in agony over sin, suffering, injustice, and human tragedy. I love this next sentence. Listen to what he said. It describes a person whose heart is broken by what breaks God's heart. Mourning is a brokenness of heart over that which breaks the heart of God. Mourning is a deep sense of grief. It's something that's celebrated in the life of a Christian, and it's a constant lifestyle practice. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, the way that verb is written there, it describes an ongoing, continuous practice in our lives, meaning this. Mourning is not something we do for a day or two, and then we kind of leave that until we have another experience, and then we go into another period. No, mourning is a regular, ongoing part of the life of a believer. So let me put up here on the screen a definition of what I believe a biblical understanding of mourning is. Here it is. It's a brokenness before God born out of truth revealed through my fellowship with him. That's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. What does that mean? Blessed are those who are broken before God. And that brokenness is born out of truth that God has revealed through time spent in fellowship with Him. Here's what this means. As I deepen my fellowship with God, As I grow in intimacy with him, I become more aware of his holiness, his greatness, his character, his desire to manifest his glorious life in and through my life. And I'm broken before him as I realize who I am and how far I am from what he has for me. Blessed are those who mourn. Stuart Briscoe describes it this way. Listen to what he said. Repentance comes deep in the soul of a man when he realizes all God has in mind for him and how little of it he has appropriated. When he begins to understand what God wants to do with, for, in, and through him, and he looks at what has not been achieved, his heart breaks. Mourning. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time, alone with the Father, you were broken over truth that He revealed 
through fellowship with him. Listen, if we have to think back pretty far, we're not living out the biblical call of Jesus to mourn. So then, pastor, if that's what it is, what does it look like in my life to practically live as, quote, those who mourn? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. What does it look like to live this out? I'm going to give you two practical expressions of mourning. One of them is an inward expression. I want to use a word to describe it. It's the word conviction. Conviction. Conviction is what we feel in God's presence by a work of the Holy Spirit when the truth of God comes alive and we see our lives not in line with God's truth. The Holy Spirit brings conviction into our lives. Now, don't confuse conviction with condemnation. It's not the same thing. The Bible says for the child of God, there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation is a work of the enemy or of our flesh that leads to remorse, a feeling of guilt. If what you feel about the sin in your life is guilt, that's condemnation. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is conviction, and that always leads to not remorse, but repentance. Conviction. Conviction happens when we become convinced about sin in our lives through being exposed to God's truth, God's truth as we spend time alone with Him. Those moments when you're just sitting with Jesus, you're in the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and shines the light of God's holiness into your life, and you realize the unholiness of your life, and you're broken before God over that area of sinfulness, and you move in turning from that. One of the things that has been most difficult for my wife and I, that's probably not a good way to say it, but one of the first world problems that we have had to deal with through COVID-19 is we are big moviegoers. Like we go to the movies a lot. We enjoy, it's one of the things we enjoy doing together. We like going to see movies. We like enjoying movies and we like the whole experience of the movie theater. I like when you go to the movie theater. Listen, it's not going to the movies if you don't buy the biggest possible box of popcorn. You need the one that takes two people to carry it in, right? If you don't do that, that's not going to the movies, right? Going to the movies. Now, here's what I've, I've, I've had happen to me many times in the movies. We go in, we sit down, and we got that big tub of popcorn and Man, we're eating, 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 and we're drinking that, you know, big drink that's about as tall as you are, and have to be careful not to put your eye out when you lean over with the straw that's, well, after an hour into the movie, you know, I got to go to the restroom, you get up, you run to the bathroom, and you're trying to be real quick, and you go to the restroom, you run to wash your hands, and you look up in there in the mirror, and you realize, I am literally covered in popcorn. <laughs> now, in the movie theater... I never realized I was, I was fine in the movie theater. It was dark. Nobody was pointing a finger. My wife didn't even notice, like nobody said anything to me. But as soon as I got in the light, I realized, man, I'm a mess and it needs to be cleaned up. 
Listen to what the Bible says in 1 John. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Here's what this means. The more I grow in fellowship with the Father, the more the light of his glory exposes the mess in my life. And mourning is my response of brokenness to God's truth in my life. Now, this is a continuous process. You know why? Because I never arrive. And don't look at me like you do, all right? None of us have arrived. We are an ongoing work of being conformed to the image of Jesus. As a matter of fact, there are some things that I struggle with over and over and over, and I get so tired of those things in my life, and yet God has to continually break me over those things. And then there are other things that God's making aware in my life right now that I didn't even know were an issue after 30 years of walking with Christ until the last few weeks as God through his word has just begun revealing things. I mean, it's a continuous process and it's an uncomfortable process. But it's a process that leads us to deeper intimacy with God. Part of this morning is an inward response of conviction and repentance. Repentance is not a once and done act for the Christian. It's a lifestyle of surrender in response to the work of God. And that's mourning. But there's an outward expression. This is where I want to spend the bulk of my time. There's an outward expression. And it's another word. It's not conviction. It's the word compassion. You see, as followers of Jesus... We are not only broken by sin in our own lives, but we should be broken by the effects of sin in the lives of others. You see, when we're living out mourning, not only do I realize I'm a mess, I become more aware that the world we live in is a mess. And the world is a mess because sin brought brokenness into the world. We live in a world that is broken by sin. And as we fellowship with God, we realize that this world is fallen and that sin, and because of sin, <laughs> there is suffering, there is pain, there is disease, there is famine, there is injustice, and, and some of it directly related to sin, all of it indirectly related to sin. And as a Christian, when we see it, we should be broken over the things that we see in the world. Let me ask you a question. When you see the chaos in the world, and I know when I even use that word, in a crowd that's diverse like this, when I say chaos, different things come to your mind. Some are thinking political, some are thinking relational, some are thinking social, some are thinking spiritual. But when you see the chaos in the world, and I want you to be honest in your own heart, don't answer out loud, what's your heart response?
Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Depression? Or, or, when you see what's happening in the world around us, are you broken over the impact of sin and the world God made? You see, the world that we live in lives in this same chaos and they get mad and they get angry and they get frustrated and they get depressed and they get discouraged but Jesus says to the Christian man I'm calling you to something different you ought to see this different than the world sees it you ought to see it as the effect of sin in the world And it should grieve your heart because it grieves the heart of God. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. The man who is truly Christian is a man who mourns also because of the sins of others. He does not stop at himself. He sees the same in others. He is concerned about the state of society and the state of the world. And as he reads his newspaper, and if this was written today, it would be scrolls through social media or searches on the internet. He does not stop at what he sees or simply express disgust at it. He mourns because of it. Because men can so spend their life in this world. Indeed, he goes beyond that and mourns over the state of the whole world as he sees the moral muddle and unhappiness and suffering of mankind and reads of wars and rumors of wars. He sees the whole world as an unhealthy and unhappy condition. He knows that it is all due to sin. And he mourns because of it. Where's the mourning in the church? Oh, we're self-righteous. Oh, we get angry. Oh, we got opinions. Oh, we can be divisive. Where's the mourning? When will our heart break over that which breaks the heart of God? I want to walk you around the world for a minute. I want to do it through some numbers. And I want to do it through some images. I want to show you the impact of sin in the world. Some of it's direct, some of it's indirect. But all because of the fall of the world. Did you know that as we sit here today... Almost half of the world's population, 
five billion people live on less than $5.50 a day. That's $2,000 a year. When you lay your head down on your pillow tonight, three and a half billion people in the world are living in poverty. Of those three and a half billion, almost 800 million of them live in extreme poverty, meaning less than a dollar and 90 cents a day. A few hundred dollars a year. When you hear that, when you see that, do you know that that breaks the heart of God? And because it breaks the heart of God, does it break your heart? i got to be honest. When I hear us in America as Christians screaming about our rights, and I'm talking about on every side of the political aisle, Listen, when I came to Jesus, his invitation to me was to die. Dead people don't have rights. They're dead. Three and a half billion people in the world. Let me bring it home. United States of America. Almost 12 and a half percent of the population of America. That's 40 million people. Live on less than $12,000 a year in America. 40 million people in America. Poverty. Let's talk about another area. A child under the age of 15 dies around the world every five years. Seconds. Did you hear that? We've been silent for about 10 seconds. Somewhere in the world, two children under the age of 15 died. And listen. Most of those deaths are from preventable causes. We have the medication. We have the science. We have the technology. They didn't have to die. In the United States of America, there are almost half a million children in foster care right now think about that half a million children whose family lives are so shattered 
they don't know where they'll sleep tonight. There are more than 40 million people today in slavery globally. We talk about slavery like it's a thing of the past. 40 million is more people than have ever been enslaved in any moment in human history. There are 40 million people enslaved right now. Human trafficking generates $150 billion annually. And one in four victims of modern slavery are children. This ought to bring it home. Nevada has the highest rate of human trafficking cases per 100,000 people in the United States of America. Let me tell you something about all this stuff. It breaks the heart of God. The question is, does it break our heart? One last arena. About three quarters of blacks and Asians, 76% of each, and 58% of Hispanics say they have experienced discrimination or have been treated unfairly because of their race or ethnicity from time to time. We want to talk about racism like it's a political issue. Listen, racism breaks the heart of God. And it should break the heart of the people of God. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Christians should be leading the movement of social reform. And they should be there from a heartfelt love for humanity. Here's what that means. We're not leading a movement because of politics. We're not leading a movement because of political correctness. They should be there from a heartfelt love of humanity. Why? Because God so loved the world. And from an acute awareness of the horror and destructiveness of man's sin. As followers of Jesus, we we should not simply be vocal about sin and its effects on society. We should be broken before God and moved to make a difference. I want to show you an equation today. I hope it is enlightening. It's an equation, what I'm calling the compassion equation. What does it mean to mourn? It means to have conviction that leads to repentance inwardly, but it means to have compassion outwardly. Here's the equation. Compassion is weeping for the way things are, but that's not all it is. It's weeping for the way things are plus working toward the way things ought to be. That's compassion. 
You see, you and I, what we're reading here is Jesus' response. He saw the crowds. Remember, that's how this whole text started. He saw the chaos in the world. He saw the messed up nature of the world because of sin. And he called his disciples away. And he said, man, I'm calling you to something different than that. I want you to be poor in spirit. And I want you to be broken before God over the things that break the heart of God. And I want you to be ambassadors of my kingdom, which means what? To represent what the kingdom looks like. Listen, let me tell you what. All those things I just read, all those images we just looked at, let me tell you what. That won't be in the kingdom that's to come. And we're to be glimpses of that right now. That's what the church ought to be. The church ought to be to be the one where the world can look and say, hey, it may be messed up, but, but there's something happening among those people. There's something different about them. There's a radical expression of God among them. That should be an attractive quality of the bride of Christ. I know this is heavy, but I hope it makes sense. Listen, we got to get past the politics of all this stuff. We got to get past the, the, the American ideology of all this stuff. We got to get past the divisiveness of all this stuff. And we must be ambassadors of the king and his kingdom. We need to weep over the way things are. We need to empathize. We need to cry. We need to mourn. And we need to work together towards the way things ought to be in the kingdom of God. So let me quickly ask two final questions just for some application and we'll be done. What's the promise concerning those who mourn? Here's the beauty of this. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Man, you can hear all of this stuff. You can see it and get a little bit overwhelmed. But Jesus says, man, when what breaks God's heart breaks our heart, we will be comforted. How are we comforted? Let me just give you two. We're comforted by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The word comforted, blessed are they who mourn for they shall be comforted. The word comforted is a verb that comes from a noun. The noun is parakletos. It's unique. You know what that noun is? The name for the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you. That is the spirit of truth. The word helper, you know what it is in Greek? Parakletos. It means one who comes alongside and breathes life, one who brings help, one who brings aid. The Holy Spirit gives us comfort. But not only the the presence of the Holy Spirit, the promise that this world's not all there is. Listen, here's what gives us hope. Here's what encourages us today. Yes, it's a mess. But listen, it ain't going to always be a mess. Because one day... The king is coming. Amen? 
I mean, one day, one day, Jesus himself, the scripture says, the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and together are going to be caught up together in the clouds and the air, and thus we'll always be with the Lord. It may be a mess, but it ain't going to always be a mess. One day, King Jesus is going to come, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and the kingdom will rule and reign forever. That's why Paul wrote this. Listen to what he said in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. I love that sentence. He didn't say, hey, the glory is going to be a little bit better. He said, you can't even compare it. It's like trying to compare an apple with a house. Like it's no comparison. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for that which he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. This world's not all there is. And let me close with one final thought. What, what are the hindrances to mourning. Why, why don't we mourn? I'll give you three. I'll just mention them. Number one, a lack of fellowship with God. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago? We need more of the presence of God and less in the noise of culture. Listen, a few minutes with God in the morning will not overcome wallowing in the noise of the culture the rest of the day. we got to learn to be people who are much in the presence of God. Number two, we have a lack of understanding of God's ultimate design for our lives. Remember what he said in Matthew 6, a few, another, just a chapter later in this same sermon? Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's desire for my life is not simply to go to heaven when I die. It's to be an ambassador of the kingdom, bringing a glimpse of heaven here today on earth. Third hindrance is a lack of coming to grips with the severity of sin. We live in a culture that thinks sin is trivial. It's a joke. It's just a little mistake. It's a bad habit. Yet in reality, sin is rebellion against a holy God. And sin is the most destructive force in the universe. As believers, as we seek the Father, let's ask Him, God, would you break our heart for what breaks yours?